Let me pray for this time. Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you would steady our hearts, steady our minds, that we would be tuned in, Lord, to that frequency of divine truth. Incline our hearts to yours, open our eyes to behold your glory. Unite us here collectively to fear your name. Satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast, unfailing love. And lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, there is no message more important for the follower of Jesus Christ than the gospel. There's no message more important for all of humanity than the gospel. We talk a lot about the gospel but we don't actually talk a lot about the gospel, if that makes sense. We speak about it on a surface level, but we never actually dedicate time to plumb the truths of the gospel. And it's really important because you notice that in the mission statement or in the values we have, we say we're Christ-centered, gospel-driven. The reason we do that is that the gospel is the vehicle that brings us to God. It brings us to Christ. It's the rocket fuel that's going to animate all that we do. We need to make sure that we get it right. And I want to make sure that the foundations when we talk about gospel are there. Uh, Things that we take for granted, we can't. I don't want to assume anything. I want to make sure that when we speak of the gospel, this good news, that the foundation is set and secure as our as the people of God. And so the gospel begins, as we understand the gospel begins with an understanding that God, in his fullness, in his triune nature, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is sovereign over all things and the creator of all things. And so when we say that, the first thing I want to spend our time looking at is to understand that this sovereign creator God has always existed. It seems kind of self-evident to many of us who have spent any time in the church and the word of God, but it doesn't make it any less glorious. That the God whom we worship and serve, the God that has given us this amazing news, has always existed. And so when we say that, the first thing I want us to take notice of when we talk about God always existing is that when we get to the Bible, a very interesting thing takes place. When you look at verse 1 of the entire Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible makes no defense, no explanation for the existence of God. The Bible begins with the presupposition that God is, that God has always existed. The Bible makes no defense for the existence of God. It doesn't invoke the unmoved mover. It doesn't talk about Paley's watch. He doesn't talk about the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the teleological argument. The Bible begins by saying, 
God created the heavens and the earth. There was a moment where there was nothing. Now there's everything and God made it all, which means God has always existed. God is absolute reality. We need to have that foundation in place because that foundation is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We have to have that proper apprehension of God. I have a minor in philosophy. I spent a lot of time sinfully in love with apologetics. I have enough apologetics to have a bonfire the entire summer. That's how many apologetic books I have. And I'm not going to say all apologetics are bad. I think there is a God-honoring place for apologetics. But we have to be careful that our inquiry, our desire to know, doesn't go beyond a certain point where we're actually not having humility and reverency before God. God is God and we are not. It is not in our place to know everything. The mysteries of God belong to God. He has always existed, and I think we have to be careful that we don't push too hard trying to answer the question, how do we know God exists? Because there comes a place where asking why is just delayed obedience, delayed belief. A child can ask their parents why, why, why in a way that's very honest, true, curious inquiry. A child can also begin to ask why because they just want to delay the obedience they know is supposed to happen. And so when we talk about God, he's always existed. The Bible doesn't try to explain his existence. And as we seek to share this gospel news, this good news to people, don't allow yourself to get pulled into the endless arguments trying to defend God's existence. To somebody who has not been born again by the Spirit of God, trying to prove the existence of God to them is like trying to prove to a blind person the colors of the rainbow. They can't see it. We simply must proclaim. And so that's the first foundation point. The Bible doesn't try to explain his existence because God has always existed. The next point on that one, under the God who's always existed, is that there is only one true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We find a passage here that every good Jewish person would have heard and committed to memory. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one true and living God, one God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes the following. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The scriptures are abundantly clear that there is only one God. And anyone or anything that proposes to be a God is not a God at all and is acting on behalf of the devil. If anyone tries to say there is another God but the one true God of Holy Scripture, 
they are not only in sin, but they are in an attack against the very character and nature of God. Allah is not God. Krishna is not God. Whatever belief system out there is not there. Taoism has no God. Buddhism has no God. There is only the one true God of Israel that exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With that being said, just because we say there's only one God, that does not mean that all these other roads lead to this one God. That's not how it works. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Islam can never bring you to the one true God. Judaism can never bring you to the one true God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Latter-day Saints, they will not bring you to the one true God. There is only one God, and there is only one way to him, and that is what we're spending these weeks looking at. Some people say, yeah, there's only one true God, but everybody has different understanding of this. Like a bunch of men that are blindfolded touching different parts of the elephants. One person touching the trunk, one person touching the ear, one person touching the leg, one person touching the tail. They're all touching the one God, but since they can't see it, they're doing their best to describe. And so we have to be understanding, compassionate, accepting, tolerant, that everybody is just describing the best they can to what true God according to what they have. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because that falls apart for two reasons. One, who told him it was an elephant? So the person using that kind of line of thinking already presupposes that they have some knowledge that the other blind person doesn't. Secondly, what if the elephant speaks and says, no, I'm one true God. This is who I am. Your understandings are wrong. See, our God has spoken. He has spoken through general revelation. But he has spoken with definitiveness in his word. And he has told us who he is, that he is the one God, that there is no other. Anyone who says otherwise needs to repent. There's only one God. <coughs> this God who has always existed also is self-existent. What I mean by that is God doesn't need us or anything in creation. God has no need. He, have, he has all existence within himself. Creation is simply here to glorify him. We have needs. We need sleep. We need food. We need relationships. We need all these things because we are contingent beings. We are not self-existent beings, but God is a self-existent God. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 12. Right, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Creation is dependent upon God. God is not dependent upon creation or in need of creation. He is everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. He is, <coughs> he is self-existent within himself. Or Jeremiah 10.10. 10. 
But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. God has no needs. He's always existed and has all he needs within himself. There's no outside source that he that he's connected to. And because he's always existed, not only is he self-existent, he's eternal. And we've been seeing some of these verses. Everlasting to everlasting, we just saw in Psalm 90. God has no beginning. God has no end. There was never a time when God wasn't. He is the sovereign God. He is now bound by time. He created time. He stands outside of time and chooses to interact in time. He's eternal. We saw that also in Psalm in 1 Timothy 1:17. In Deuteronomy 33. Verse 27, it says, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God. That's beautiful because it's because God is eternal, no beginning, no end. It means a couple things, not to get into a complete study on the attributes of God, but it means that he doesn't change. He's not bound, but he's not in time, bound by time. So he's not subject to change. His eternalness means he's immutable, unchanging, which means if God is eternal, his promises endure forever and they will not change toward us. The last sub-point under the God who's always existed is that God is all-sufficient, self-sufficient. He possesses within himself, because of all the things we've looked at, every quality, an ability, every supernatural command. He has that all within himself. There isn't like God wants to do something. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Let me go run to my supernatural closet and grab this piece that I was missing. I got to put that on right now. That's not how, the, how it operates. God has every quality and ability within himself because he is God. And he's all that he is simultaneously at the, song, at the same time. It isn't that God is sometimes love and sometimes anger. And then he's like, wait a minute, I need to be loving right now. Leave my anger aside and jump into my love. No, he is everything at once. He is always love. He is always holy. He is always all that he is. And he contains it all within himself. He lacks nothing. Therefore, the God who lacks nothing needs nothing and can supply us with everything. So that's the first point. The God who created, the God who's always existed. Which brings us to the second point, the God who has created everything. The God who created it all. Again, I know all of us are very familiar with the book of Genesis. But isn't it amazing that the first thing we see in the beginning of Genesis, the first thing we see God do is create. 
He creates everything. That's the first thing we hear about we hear in scripture, that God makes everything. And he does it by speaking. He is a creating, communicating God. All creation springs forth from his lips. Think about if I told an individual, I want you to make me a rose. They would look at me like I'm crazy. Make me a rose. They can't. It would, it just, it's, a nonsense, it's a nonsense type question. Because, but, if I, but God can say rose and it appears. It comes into existence. He has the power, the wisdom, the order, the creativity with himself to do such things. He creates by his word. And that has implications for salvation that we'll see in later weeks. But really take a moment and ponder that. Anything that God would desire, he would simply need to speak into existence. That is a God that should be that we should be very humble in front of. That is the God who told the waters to be still and they listened. This is the God who told the, the, the Red Sea to part. This is the God who spoke volcanoes into existence. Every little critter in the ground spoken into existence by the very mouth of God. He <coughs> is the creator of everything. You go, you know, we go on vacation this summer, went to the, to the Tennessee, Gatlinburg, the mountains are up there. We're on this hike in this beautiful waterfall and these jagged rocks. They exist there because God created them by his word. We would do well to walk around the life with our eyes more open. Which brings us to that sub point. The first thing we see God do is create. He creates by his word, which means the entire world is pointing to him. God didn't create because he was bored. God, hasn't, God wasn't up in eternity saying, man, it's about, I don't know, 90 eternity cycles. Getting kind of bored up here. Need to do something, need a hobby. Let me make palm trees and coconuts. That's not what God did. He created with intentionality because he desired for creation to point and glorify him. Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. It is all a canvas showing the glory of God. It's astounding. This world is truly astounding, but it would be a crime to fall in love with the glory of creation and miss the glory of the creator. That would be a travesty. Not only would it be wrong and sinful, but it's just sad. It is sad to behold such a beautiful, astounding creation 
and think, wow, this came together by chance, just a giant accident. That's sad. To be able to have telescopes that see galaxies and supernovas and all these other things that I have no idea what they are in space would look amazing. And as I said, that's a really beautiful accident. To be able to look in the face of a child and say, wow, I love how just molecules accidentally create a smile. No. God has created all to point to him in his glory. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. A couple things. The one who formed you from the womb. My friend, a good friend of mine, just had a little baby boy. Send me a picture, right? This little boy had been in the world maybe all of like 120 seconds. Beautiful child, beautiful little boy. That's no accident. He was intricately formed and fashioned by the hand of God. God has made it all. And notice it said here, spreading out. The spreading and spreading out the earth all alone. God did not have a building team. God did not say, you know, Gabriel, I need some help over here. Having a really hard time trying to figure out how to shape the nose on Lawson here, who's just about to come into the world in a few days. You think his nose should be a little more pointy, a little more crooked? Like, what do you think here? No, not at all. Not at all. God has formed every single person, every single thing for all eternity. It's an amazing thing to ponder. An amazing thing. All creation and every creation within creation points to him. And as we begin to continue to go into the understanding of the gospel, that means that each and every one of us has been fashioned by God to point to God. That means as we go out about our weeks and you're in traffic and that person cuts you off and you want to get angry at them, recognize they are made by God for his purposes. Seek to see the fingerprints of God on everything that's been created and fashioned by him. His divine fingerprint is over everything. Sometimes that means we should take a, a deep look at every little brushstroke and sometimes take a step back and see the bigger picture. Learn to see God in a leaf, in a piece of bark on a tree, but then take a step back and see God in a bunch of children playing in a park. Learn to see that because the whole world and everything in it is pointing to him. The heavens are pointing to him. Space and galaxies are pointing to him. God has created a rose in a desert that will spring up that no one will ever see. And he did that for his own glory. I remember hearing a, a pastor preach a sermon on God creating a rose that will spring for a moment to wither that nobody will ever see who does it for his own glory. Creation is pointing to him. And as we look at the God who created everything, then something 
There should be something that we is self-evident once we hear it. If God has created all, God must have life within himself. Nobody had to give God life. God has life within himself. And so if we go to the Gospel of John, and we go to chapter 5, verse 26, we see our Lord Jesus say the following. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to have life in himself. Jesus tells us God has life in himself. Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He said, Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, they performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Who turned the hearts? God. God has the power not only to give life, but to govern life. We saw that in this morning's message a bit. The God who gives life can can govern it. And then Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God has all life within himself, and that life never diminishes, never tires. He continues to be the God who has all life, is full of life. God will never die. But he can't take and give life. But he can also resurrect it. And so the God who has life within himself is a God that should be entrusted with our souls and our life. Because the God who has all life within himself and says that those who believe in him shall never die can be entrusted to continue to give that life. Last sub-point here for this point is that because God has the one who creates all things, because he creates by his word, because all creation is pointing to him, because he has life in himself, God is the source of all. A passage of scripture that has kept me on my face. Just I'm going to read it. Romans 11, 34 through 36. I would encourage you 
to sit there and really just listen to word by word and study and just marvel over it. Actually, starting at 33, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has, or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That last verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the source of it all. He's giving me life. I'm speaking because he is sustaining my life and allowing me to speak. Nothing can exist apart from God. He holds it all together. He's the divine glue of it all. The reason my body doesn't just rip apart into molecules and atoms and all this other stuff is because God is holding it together by his word. He is the source of it all. And we are going to see that in about two weeks really beautifully in Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the God who's created it all. <clears throat> and the last point for this evening, the God who rules over it all. God has ownership rights over everyone and everything. We don't like to really think about that much. We like to consider ourselves free and autonomous people. But God has ownership over everyone and everything. If you make something, by definition, it's yours. And you have to do what you want with it. A very powerful example is found in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, verse 25... You read the following. That you would, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it bestows it on whomever he wishes. God does that to a king. A couple of verses later in that same chapter, 33 to 35, right? Continues this interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 33. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of, from the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles feathers and his nails like birds claws but at the end of the period i nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me 
And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has ownership rights. He makes a king as a wild beast in the field. And what is that wild beast? What does he recognize when he's acting like that wild beast? That there is one God and he can do whatever he wants. And no one can stop the hand of God. No one. You need to be very careful when you say God no. No to God. Because he might just put us in a field acting like a wild animal. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The earth is the Lord. It belongs to him. We belong to him. We are his property. That's offensive because we're prideful. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God makes no apologies for exercising divine ownership. And because he owns it all, means he oversees it all. There is nothing hidden from the eye of God. Nothing. Which is scary, considering how we live our lives with such a disregard for God, not aware of God, you know, a godless awareness. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can never hide from the eye of God. He sees all that you do, all that you think, all that you desire. Nothing escapes him. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. God knows what you're going to do. Psalm 33, 13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. God sees us right here, right now. God sees the most prominent to the most insignificant. That little buddy that runs across your yard at 2 a.m., the Lord sees that buddy. The Lord also sees you in your room grieving. The Lord also sees you in the car shaking your fist at him when you're frustrated. The Lord also sees you when you seek him in the morning, your devotions. The Lord sees it all, and he governs it all. And because he governs it all, we need to see this last point here, that he governs all, he sovereignly rules over all with holiness and with righteousness. He isn't some evil tyrant ruler. He isn't seeking simply to be power-hungry at the expense of, of his people, or of his creations. He is God, and he is a good God, a holy God. If you listen to Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. 
and kind in all his deeds. All that he does, all that he commands is free from sin, from error, from stain. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make a decision ever because he lost his cool. God never has to circle back around and say, you know what? I did that thing, but in that moment, my emotions just got the best of me. I'm really sorry. I'll do better next time. That's what we do. But God governs all as the great sovereign with holiness and righteousness. There is never a thing that God does that is not right, just, pure, and good. All that he does reflects his character. Now, I understand that hard things happen, and that can bring into question the goodness of God. Because God is sovereign over Afghanistan. But we also have to understand that we look at things in the moment. God looks at things who stands outside of time with redemptive purposes. An example that I've often used when I was a youth pastor was if I told you this man cut butcher cut open this girl's chest and I stopped there, you'd be like, that is a horrible thing. And I said, let me try this. Let's see, let's see the same scenario, but now let me give you more context. This man cut open a girl's chest because her heart was failing and he was a great surgeon and he brought her from a country that didn't have great medical and she had no money, but he paid for it all and he cut open her chest and replaced her heart with a new heart and now she's alive. All of a sudden that horrible act isn't horrible. Now it's a beautiful, just thing. The only thing that changed was information. We're looking at situations in the world that are hard but we're looking at it through limited information because we don't have the mind of God. We don't know what he's doing. And God doesn't owe us anything to tell us that. So all that God does is holy, righteous, and good. And if we're having a hard time at that moment seeing the holy, righteous, and good that he's doing, just remember we are nothing but men. We're finite. We don't have infinite knowledge. But God does. And he's bringing about a good that we may see or may not see at some given point. But let's never allow our limited information because of our small, limited human brains to somehow impugn the holy, righteous character of God. If God, if everything God did wasn't holy and righteous, then why would we ever lay hold to promises? Like Romans 8.28, that all things work for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We lay hold of promises like that because we know that all that God does is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is when things aren't going our way, we somehow forget that. So this morning we saw, I mean this morning, this evening we've seen that God is the sovereign creator of all things. He's the God who has always existed. He's the God who made it all, and he is the God who rules over it all. And that is a foundation that must be in place if we're going to rightly understand the gospel. And so next week we'll continue, but that's all for now. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come before you. And Father, I think it's fitting that even before we approach you right now and call you Father, we would say, mighty, sovereign, great king, Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord, that you have all life within yourself, that you are ruling it all, that you're ruling it all according to your character. Father, help us have a bigger understanding and vision that you sit on the throne, that your plans cannot be thwarted, that all that you do is holy, righteous, and good. 
that you need nothing, yet we need everything from you. And help us, Lord, to remember that your sovereignty is a beautiful thing. Lord, I wish we had more time. So, Father, these application points will be our prayer. Father, help us to acknowledge your sovereignty, to remember that we are the creature, you are the creator. Help us, Lord, humble us. May we have humility be humbled by your sovereignty. May we rest in your sovereignty, Lord. And may we worship you for being the sovereign creator of all things. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.